Hello there, my name is Skipper Melody and you're listening to D&D, a Stranger Things podcast. Join me as we go through Hawkins, Indiana and the Upside Down to uncover clues and mysteries that are abound. From Egos to Hawaiian pizza, this podcast is something you don't want to miss. So thank you for listening and let's dissect and discuss Stranger Things. Hey everyone, welcome back to D&D, a Stranger Things podcast. I am so excited to be here. I am about two weeks ahead in recording, and so I just released my pilot episode and my chapter one episode. My chapter two will be coming out this week, and I'm just super excited to see where it goes. So if you're listening, thank you so much for doing so. I am so excited to talk about this episode. This is actually my favorite episode from season one of Stranger Things. Maybe not my favorite moment. There's a lot of moments in the finale and episodes coming up that I like a lot more. But as a cohesive episode, this is probably my favorite from season one of Stranger Things. So before we head into it, I just wanted to let you guys know, I'm going to have the links to all of my socials underneath, but I do have a TikTok account, Instagram, and a Twitter for Skipper Melody. So if you guys want to go over there and check them out, I do a lot of Star Wars stuff, Disney stuff, and I'll be posting more about Stranger Things as well. Let me know if you think that I should do my own page just for the podcast, but until this gets big enough where I think it needs its own page, I probably won't do it, but feel free to let me know. I'll also have my email tagged below, so you are free to email me any questions, comments, or anything that you'd like me to talk about while I'm recording. Also to let you know, I do have Patreon set up. Again, it's under the Skipper Melody handle. And at the second tier, which I believe is $7 a month, you can be invited to the Discord server where I put my notes early for all my podcasts. And I'm thinking that I will also release the episodes early on Discord as well. So if you guys want to be a part of that, any bit of money helps, like Tiana says in Princess and the Frog. So if you would like to join and get that early access, that is there for you. Also wanted to let you guys know for this episode and moving forward, I was listening back to my first two episodes and I realized that in the first one, I talked about the Holocaust and in the second one, I talked about suicide. So. Even though the Holocaust is not something that is discussed in Stranger Things, Stranger Things is a more adult show. It has language warnings, it talks about sex, it talks about suicide, it talks about murder, it talks about drowning. So there's a lot of things in there that are more adult, and I try to keep what I talk about on the same level as Stranger Things. So I just wanted to let you know if any of that makes you uncomfortable at all or you ever felt uncomfortable while watching the show, I usually do my deep dives going through the show at the same pace of what the show does. So if you know that a scene's coming up that you didn't particularly like, feel free to skip ahead from that part of the podcast and I will try to give a content warning if I think that I'm going to be talking about something more sensitive in the future. So now that we have that done, 
I wanted to give some background, so as I said, this is my favorite episode from season one of Stranger Things. Holly Jolly is a great episode, and honestly, I think that has a lot to do with the music. We have two themes that are introduced in this episode. I'm pretty sure they're introduced in this episode. One is called One Blink for Yes, and the other is called Eleven's Theme, or just Eleven. Both of them carry this somber tune, but also this, like, childlike tune and especially the one blink for yes track is very serene to me so my first watch of stranger things that i discussed in the pilot episode my friend told me that she would stay up with me while we watched she was asleep by this episode and this was the first episode where i was really bought in and i didn't like close my eyes in fear or duck behind a blanket once during the entire episode. And I did for the first two episodes. I remember specifically hiding behind a blanket during the second episode when the monster was coming for Barb. So just to give you an idea of where I was at emotionally the first time that I watched this episode, I was just so drawn in by everything. And even just the characters in this episode really getting more heavily delved into. I've just, this episode's really great for that. So other thing I'm going to say before we head into the deep dive is that there will be kind of spoilers in this episode. If you're not somebody who likes learning about behind the scenes stuff, there's one particular scene in this episode that I want to give thanks to director Sean Levy for doing. And I'll talk about it more when we get to it, but I will be talking about that. So if you don't want to know that for whatever reason, it has no say on anything else that happens in any other episode or season, but it is just a behind the scenes thing that I think is really cool and I'd like to talk about. So all of that being said, it's time to delve into and discuss Stranger Things Chapter 3, Holly Jolly. So Nancy Wheeler, take it away. I have a lead. They said they wanted proof, right? So let's give it to them. You're relentless, you know that? I just look forward to you never doubting me again. So starting with the opening sequence, because that's of course where we would start, it opens on Barb in this drained pool and there's a bunch of weird vines around her and she kind of like chokes up water almost as if she was drowning, I guess, which I mean, I don't think she fell into the pool when the monster took her. I don't know, but there's these weird vines and tentacles all around her and then it does like cut back and forth between her and then Nancy and Nancy is uh getting pretty toasty warm in bed with Steve there so her and Steve in the last episode she gave nonverbal consent and they started uh getting ready to go at it and in the beginning of this episode you see them going at it. So we also get the first full shot of the monster, except for the feet. I will say we don't get the feet, but we get the arms, we get the face, the face is kind of like scrunched in. We saw it open in the last episode when it took Barb, but now it's all scrunched. I wanted to mention the production design for the pool. So in Empire Strikes Back, when Han, Leia, C-3PO, they're all in the worm's mouth in the meteor, and like the Millennium Falcon, they're hiding from Boba Fett. And they went onto the meteor and they're actually in like the stomach of this beast. And when they're walking around outside the Falcon, you can tell that the floor is just tarp. 
that's all it is. Like, they just laid out tarp in there. And that is the same feeling that I get watching this scene because the vines look like they tried. They tried so hard, but their budget wasn't what it is now. Now they have a team of like a million special effects guys. But in season one, they just had one person. And so a lot of stuff was practical effects. I am not saying anything bad about the production design. I love it. I said that it's like C for effort, but also C for charming because it is, it's just very reminiscent of the 80s feel. And of course we're in the 80s right now. So I I really liked it. I enjoyed it, but I wanted to mention it. Barb has a scream at one point where she calls out for Nancy and then it switches back to Steve and Nancy getting ready to do what they're going to do. And Nancy kind of just looks away and looks outside as almost as if she heard her, which is interesting. I don't know if that's something that actually happens with wherever Barb is. This is also the first time I'm pretty sure where like Eleven mentioned that Will is in the Upside Down. He's in another plane of existence, whatever. Is this the first time that we're actually seeing it? Because now Barb is there. So Barb has gone to this other place of existence. And somehow Nancy was able to hear her. Interesting. Something to think about. There's also just something important about this scene too. Sex and I'm guessing virginity. I I am 99% certain that Nancy was a virgin before this night. And in pieces of fiction and media, virginity is something that is very important to use. In old horror movies, the virgin would always live because they were, like, holier than thou. That doesn't really happen anymore, but it was a trope in old horror movies that if you were a virgin, you got to live. So I don't think that's going to apply here unless they're like, well... Nancy can now die because she's not a virgin anymore, but I doubt they're going to do that. But it is something where innocence is something that's tied to virginity in a lot of pieces of fiction and media and a lot of religions as well. And so now Nancy has lost her innocence, which is going to be interesting to see how her character develops now moving forward. After that, we get the title sequence with the episode title of Holly Jolly. I think we'll see where that comes in later. By the way, I think I figured out who the weirdo on Maple Street was. Hey guys, so I definitely did not figure out where Maple Street was. Because apparently Maple Street, according to the Stranger Things wiki page, is the street where the Wheelers live on anyway. So Nancy lives on Maple and Steve Harrington lives on Mirkwood. Okay, cool, cool. Get ready for a really funny rant. The boys were on Maple Street when they found Eleven, and then the next episode was them getting acquainted to Eleven. So I think it was just the weirdo on Maple Street was Eleven. I don't know why I didn't think about that last week, but it's fine. We're here now. I figured it out in the middle, but that's who it was. So when I was watching this episode, I was like, okay, the morning after? The morning after? 
Mm, maybe. The, what it actually is, is the lights from the pool or the lights outside the set that they're using were way too bright coming into Steve's window because it looked like day out there. And even the episode beforehand and even the scenes before the title sequence, that light was not that bright. It was not that bright. There was no way. And so now it looks like day. I thought it was day. Apparently it's still night because when she goes home, Karen is still up, but it's past 10. Like, if anything, it's 1 a.m. Whatever. So Nancy is sitting up. Steve is laying on his stomach with his head turned away from her and is just out for the count. Like, he's asleep. Nancy tries to say bye and that she needs to go home. Steve barely mutters to her a goodbye and just continues sleeping. I was, like, kind of liking Steve in the first few episodes, and now he's just, like, that's a jerk move. That makes a girl feel really great. So Nancy goes out the back door to go home, which I'm pretty sure she knocked on the front door to get into the house, so I don't know why she's not just going through the front of the house, but she goes into the backyard by the pool, looks at the pool, then looks into the woods at a sound of something like snapping, but doesn't say anything and just keeps on going, whatever. So she comes home, like I said, definitely after 10. Karen is up waiting for her and Karen yells at her for not being home by 10. Nancy makes up a lie that after the assembly, they had decided to go get something to eat and it was cold. So Steve gave her his sweatshirt because she's now wearing Steve's sweatshirt. Karen can tell that Nancy is lying about something in that story and just wants Nancy to talk to her. I'm pretty sure that Karen can tell that Nancy either just had sex or did something close to sex, but Karen's not really pushing it. Karen tells Nancy that she just wants Nancy to talk to her and feel that she can talk to her. And that really mirrors the conversation that she just had with Mike in the last episode about wanting Mike to talk to her as well. Karen's still just a great mom in this episode, and I feel really bad for her that her kids are just, like, not wanting to talk to her. Because she's a lot nicer than some other moms in media, I'm just saying. So the next scene, we're on the morning of November 9th, which is a Wednesday. I don't know why that's important, but I'm trying to keep track of the timing of everything. So, especially now with Nancy, because she just lost her innocence. So, if Nancy is going to be a main character in this plot of what's going to happen, it's obvious that this is going to move into very big scale. And the fact that Barb, I'm pretty sure, is dead at this point from that opening sequence it's going to be interesting to see how Nancy copes with losing her innocence, her childhood, losing that, and if that affects her at all in any way, tied to the fact that she's going to be dealing with figuring out that her best friend died eventually somewhere else in the season. And I want to say like how many days it takes between them and just how much trauma that Nancy is going to have built up from these events happening so fast paced. We open the morning of November 9th at the buyer's house. Jonathan is sleeping in the same exact position that Steve was. Both of them were shirtless. Both of them are laying on their 
beds or laying on their stomachs. And Jonathan is looking away from the camera while Steve was looking away from Nancy. Now, Jonathan differs from Steve in the fact that when he hears a woman speaking, he actually gets up and, like, is attentive to it. Jonathan hears his mother speaking to Will, trying to get Will to talk to her for some reason, and decides to get out of bed and goes over to Will's room and sees Joyce sitting on Will's bed, and she has propped a bunch of lamps all around the bed. Now, I didn't know that the buyers own this many lamps. I don't think my own mother owns this many lamps. There are so many lamps around. Don't know where she got all of those. Don't know where she was storing them, but they're all in Will's room now. Now, the brilliance of this scene is that when Jonathan is asking Joyce what she's doing, what, what are you trying to do? And Joyce is explaining it we know that Joyce is telling the truth. We have the hindsight as the audience to know that Joyce is correct. But if we were in this situation, if we were in this world, and somebody started telling us that their son was speaking to them through the lights, we'd think that they were insane. We would be exactly the same as Jonathan and how Jonathan is reacting. So the fact that they have this scene set up that way we can try to say like, oh yeah, we would side with Joyce because we are siding with Joyce in that moment, but we wouldn't be. We would be in the exact same boat as Jonathan. I did want to mention that there's a Jaws poster on Will's wall. Just a cool thing to notice. You know, Jaws was a popular movie of the time and it's there. At the Wheeler house, the boys are gathering supplies in the morning to go on a hunt for Will later that night after school. Lucas has brought weapons to fight the monster which mirrors Lucas wanting Will to roll Fireball to attack the Demogorgon. So Lucas is still displaying these very offensive strategies where he's going to bring the weapons. He's going to want to fight. Dustin has brought food to sustain them, which Dustin was the one who wanted Will to run away. So Dustin is a lot more focused on the preservation of life than the offensive maneuvers. So Dustin does mention calling the monster the Demogorgon. So I believe it's this episode that the kids decide to start calling this monster or whatever took Will the Demogorgon. So I am going to start calling it the Demogorgon because I have been wanting to for the past two episodes and it has been a struggle to say monster. So now I am going to start saying Demogorgon. Capiche? Capiche. The boys tell Dustin, like, why did you bring food? Why didn't you bring anything helpful? And Dustin kind of defends himself by saying that Elle will be able to protect them with her powers. So he's kind of thinking, like, I don't need to do anything because Eleven's here. And honestly, probably true. Dustin tries to get her to float this Millennium Falcon, which looks a lot like the one that my dad has. And my dad has an original 1977 Millennium Falcon model toy. And he wouldn't let me touch it until I was 17. Like, I, I wasn't allowed to touch that thing. It was priceless to him. It still is. And Dustin, like, tries to get her to float it. And Eleven just stares directly into his eyes like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so the Falcon just drops on the floor. 
and he does it again and it drops on the floor again and I'm like my dad would be screaming right now no nope can't do it Next up, Karen calls for the boys to start going to school because, again, they're meeting at Mike's house in the morning. They're going to be coming back. Mike goes up to 11 and tells her to meet them at the power lines at 315, which she does not understand. And somewhere in the middle of this conversation, Karen calls Michael from upstairs, and then you get this great shot of Mike or Finn Wolfhard turning around and just screaming, coming and it's like it is hilarious the way they shot that scene and there are so many like memes of just that image alone that are great so that happens and then mike gives 11 his watch and tells her to read it as 315 so when it says 315 come to the power lines behind the house and we'll meet there end of scene next back over to the high school Nancy is obviously feeling paranoid. So again, she has just had sex for the first time. In this day and age, it was probably not well accepted to have sex, especially for a woman. That's still kind of what we have today. But in a lot of different medias, if a girl has sex, she is viewed as a hoe or a whore. And if a guy has sex, they are viewed as a king because that that's just how sexism goes. So Nancy is feeling paranoid, feels like everyone's looking at her. It's kind of shy as though everyone is, but I don't know if that's her thinking that that's happening or if it's just actually happening. So she goes over to her locker, really lost in thought, and then Steve comes over. And Steve, like, I was trying to give him benefit of the doubt in the first two episodes, okay? Like, he had a few fun lines. There was that, you're beautiful, Nancy Wheeler. You know, that he seemed okay. In this episode, he really starts just becoming a douche, which is what a lot of characters call him in the show. But he tells her that he thinks that the paranoia is cute. He did not tell anybody that they had sex, but he thought that Nancy's worrying was cute. Which, this was one of the first shows that Netflix ever came out with. Later on, they came out with this movie called To All the Boys I Loved Before, where you have a character called Peter Kavinsky, and you have a kind of similar situation where Peter is this jock, super popular guy, and the girl that he's dating, Lara Jean, is this kind of nerd, not exactly Miss Perfect, but just in the background. And in that movie, there's a part where Peter and Largine are, like, kissing each other in a hot tub. And somebody takes a video of it and makes it look like they're having sex, but they definitely did not have sex. But everyone starts talking about Largine as if she did, and Peter stands up for her and is like, Hey, whatever we did is none of your business anyway, but we definitely didn't have sex, so stop making fun of her. Like, Peter is very protective of Lara Jean and wants to make sure that Lara Jean is okay. And Steve just thinks that the paranoia is cute, which, as somebody with anxiety, that, that's not the way to help. That's, that's not the way to help at all. Like, Steve, do better. 
So Nancy goes to her class and asks the girl in front of her if she's seen Barb, because where Barb usually sits next to her, Barb is not there. So Nancy is getting worried that Barb didn't come to class. Obviously, she's probably still feeling bad about the conversation that they had the night before, and so she's just a little worried about her friend, which, good on you, Nancy. Thank you for actually caring about Barb. So we get a shot where the cops are trying to get into the lab. Callahan says something about how the lab makes space weapons and mentions Star Wars. Hilarious. From the first episode, we do remember that the lab is U.S. government. So something is happening inside. And the person at the gate says that they don't let people in and they don't give people tours. Now, the reason why they're there is because Hopper needs to check the box to see because uh, Mr. Clark found the hospital gown from the last episode, the little piece coming out of the drainage tunnel. And so Hopper was kind of like following the line of where that would lead and it would lead to the lab. So that's why he's trying to get in. There's this really great line where he just like tries to have a one-on-one with the guard, takes off his hat, is like, look, I've got a panicked mayor, Reporters breathing down my neck and a very upset mother. I'm talking 10 minutes top. Hopper is just trying to appeal to this guy's humanity. Very just like, look, I, I, I know the kid is not in there, but I have to check this box. Like, I need to do this. This is my job. Let me do it. When he says I'm talking 10 minutes top, I put a little note that said, okay, Jim Evers, Because if anyone has ever watched the Haunted Mansion film from 2003, he always says like, oh yeah, 20 minutes tops, 20 minutes tops. And then it ends up being like an hour, two hours, a few days. And so anytime a character says 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever tops, it immediately makes me think of that movie and that kind of circumstance. So we'll see if Hopper is able to actually get out in those 10 minutes. Back to the Wheeler house, Eleven is kind of just home alone, kind of bored it looks like. She is floating the Millennium Falcon. She decided to like do it and she doesn't bleed. So in the first episode, we watched her stop a fan and the fan stopping did not make her bleed either. So I'm thinking there's like a hierarchy of kind of What does make her bleed? What doesn't? What's harder for her? What's easier? And I think it will be interesting to look at this hierarchy as we go. So that's something that we're going to talk more about later. But it was just interesting to notice. So she ends up uh, getting bored with that and just drops the falcon on the floor. Again, I can hear the scream of my dad when that falcon drops. (laughs) So really funny for that. But she decides to go upstairs, and at that point, I'm like, where's Karen? In the last episode, I think she was grocery shopping, but now I'm like, where is she? What is she doing? Where's Karen? How is Eleven able to get out? And whatever, I don't really know. But she goes upstairs, she plays with the lazy boy, and then she starts messing with the TV. We go through a few different commercials. There's a political debate that they're talking about. There's a He-Man commercial or part of the television show. And then there's a Coke commercial, which sends her into a flashback where she's in the lab with Martin Brenner. And she's kind of in this testing room. 
and Martin Brenner is looking at her through the glass window, and she's sitting down at this table, and there's a Coca-Cola can on the table, and she's told to, like, begin, I guess, and she ends up crushing the Coke can, so I think she was supposed to crush the Coke can, which she does, and then that causes her to bleed, so floating things, whatever, but crushing something that that causes harm. Brenner looks proud about this, so obviously she did something right. Now she gets out of that flashback and we go to the buyer's house. So at the buyer's house, Joyce is putting up Christmas lights to get more chances to speak to Will, I'm guessing. Uh, We had her sitting down with all the lamps around, so she's deduced that Will can mess with technology, which we have seen. So she's trying to cover her entire house to see where is Will. Will can lead her places, doing stuff like that. So again, I'm presuming that Jonathan has gone to school at this point because Nancy's at school. The boys have gone to school. So Jonathan must be at school. So she's just home alone, putting a bunch of Christmas lights everywhere. She ends up running out of lights. So we have a cut scene to her going to Melvin's and she starts like getting out lights a bunch of lights and a new phone because her phone fried again during the last episode and her boss tries to like reason with her and he just says Joyce and then she cuts in and says just ring me up Donald. Great line delivery. Love Winona Ryder in this role but just absolutely hilarious. Back to the lab the cops are outside along with one of the employees looking at the drainage tunnel exit that's outside of the lab Hop is inspecting it, thinking that either Will came in this way or somehow got out that way. The employee assures that no one could have broken in with all the cameras and the guards that are around. And when cameras are mentioned, Hopper asks to see the tapes. So they get to go inside and they're walking past a bunch of people in hazmat suits. It's super busy in there. There's some screens up with radioactive symbols on them. And he asks what's going on here? And the employee says, hey, you're asking the wrong guy, not my department. Hopper asks who's in charge. And the guy says that Martin Brenner is. So whatever operation that they're doing, Brenner is the man in charge. So they go into the tapes room and they're viewing the night of November 7th on the tapes. Now, it's a very short track. I don't know if it was being sped up or not, or if they cut something out. But honestly, from what we get from Hopper in the very next scene, it might not have been the night of November 7th at all anyway. Because if we remember from the first episode with what the news was saying and what the boys were going through that night, it was storming hard. It was raining. And Hopper noticed that there was no rain on the tapes. So he says that they're lying There's obviously this big conspiracy happening with the lab. And honestly, we can already kind of deduce that. We know that the lab is going to be a big part in this season, especially just because they're where the Demogorgon came from, just because they're where the monster came in. Wait, I can call it the Demogorgon. I already said that. Yeah, the Demogorgon. See, I wanted to call it the Demogorgon. I've been wanting to call it the Demogorgon, and that's what we're doing. The Demogorgon is running through the halls, chasing after Matt the radar technician in the first episode. 
Brenner is in charge of the operation, but he was obviously doing something with Eleven where Eleven was calling him Papa. So Brenner is just this character that has a lot that he's doing, and we're trying to figure out exactly what he's doing and what his end goal is. So something is going on there, and they're lying to Hopper because they don't want him to know what was happening out there. Maybe it's because the tape actually showed Eleven sneaking through. I'm not sure, but they obviously don't want him to see what actually happened. We get a great transition where they're in the parking lot and Hopper has said now, well, I don't know what they're doing, but they're lying. And he says that right outside this vent. And then we go through the vent into a room, well, into the room with the portal that we saw in the first episode. And this shot, I don't know why it's in this episode. I really don't because I was thinking about it and I was like, why do we do this? So they have Brenner standing where this like piece of equipment is coming down from the ceiling and he's just staring at the portal very intently with his hands on his hips and his legs a little bit spread apart and he's just looking at the portal and then this like piece of equipment is coming down and he is standing right where it's coming down, like right behind where it's going to be coming down. And I'm like, dude, you couldn't move a little bit. You Like, why are you standing right there? I know why you're standing right there. It's because the director of photography wanted the shot of your face through the equipment coming down. It's ridiculous. And also, we never come back to this. So why is the equipment there? Why do we get this scene? Why do we need this scene in this episode? I don't know. I... If there's one fault I can give this episode, it's that, because there was literally no point to have it in here. Back to the Wheelers, Eleven is still exploring the house because she has no sense of privacy whatsoever. Eleven goes upstairs to Nancy's room, where there is a Tom Cruise poster on the wall. So, Nancy, reflecting a lot of uh, girls from 2022 when they got to see Top Gun Maverick, I'm just saying... So she has the Tom Cruise poster. She also has this music box in her room. A lot of Nancy's room just looks like innocence. It's very frilly. It's very pink. There's stuffed animals on the bed. Tom Cruise poster. There's a little music box. And that really juxtaposes with the fact that Nancy just did lose her innocence, which I think is going to be important moving forward. I think that's something that we we need to focus on. So we have this little girl's room that Nancy is just not fit for anymore. And Eleven's listening to the music box, gets scared by it at first, but then opens it up and really listens to it. And when she closes it the second time, Eleven's theme starts playing. Eleven's theme is very like to a music box, and it is just childlike. It's like a lullaby, and it's sad, and it just reminds you of loss. And exactly like Nancy has now lost her innocence, I don't know if Eleven ever had any innocence herself because Eleven was raised in a lab, was raised to be crushing Coke cans for whatever reason. So we have this other girl that just never got to be a child, never got to laugh, never got to play, never got to really enjoy being a child in her time and is already so much more mature because she's had to deal with so many things 
So her theme just really conveys that so much of this, like, want to have this normal life, but that that was lost to her from probably the minute she was born. I don't really know the timeline of that, but probably from the minute she was born, she just never got to be a child. And so that, again, that music just really pulls you into Eleven as a character and really makes you feel for her. So Eleven keeps on looking around the room and sees this wall of photos that Nancy has from Nancy's childhood, from her teen years, of her laughing while playing, whatever. And then there's some pictures of her and Barb. And Eleven looks at the picture of Barb and starts, I mean, she's already kind of crying, but like starts looking like she's going to cry more. And that, of course, mirrors the scene from last episode where she saw Will. So somehow she was able to see Barb or knows that Barb has gone to this other plane or was taken by the Demogorgon. Back to high school, they are now in the cafeteria having lunch. Carol has her foot up on the lunch table and is showing Steve and Tommy this wound that's on her ankle and she thinks that it's frostbite from the pool, which honestly, you're going into a pool in November in the Midwest, probably is, and you probably deserve it because you're an idiot for thinking that you're going to go in a pool in November. Nancy comes up, sits down next to Steve, and asks Tommy and Carol if they saw Barb as they were leaving last night. And Tommy is just being a complete jerk and acts like he doesn't know who Nancy is talking about. Steve tries to get an answer out of them, and Tommy says something like, you know, she probably laughed after she heard all of your moaning. And then Tommy and Carol start to mimic Steve and Nancy having sex and are just being really obnoxious with it. Now, Steve starts laughing while Nancy is clearly annoyed or embarrassed and just leans back in her chair very design, very resigned and looks down as if she's just like ashamed, like, that's not how you should be acting. That's not how you should be acting at all, Tommy and Carol. Just completely rude. And Steve is not standing up for her whatsoever, which is really aggravating. Does not tell them to stop or anything. Just kind of lets them finish off. And then Steve looks at her and is like, look, I'm sure she's fine. She's probably just skipping classes or something, which shows that Steve does not know Barb at all does not know Nancy at all because Nancy would never skip a class. Barb is not going to skip class. And so Steve is just showing a lot of like, I don't actually know you two. I don't care about you two. And I'm just going to make up a lame excuse that doesn't make sense. This scene ends with Nancy making eye contact with Jonathan as Jonathan is walking down the hall outside of the cafeteria. Over to the middle school, the boys are outside probably a recess of some kind, and they're looking for rocks on the ground for Lucas's wrist rocket that he had brought for supplies in the beginning of the episode. Dustin brings up Eleven's powers and is like, how do you think she got them? Were they born? Was she born with them or did she acquire them? And it, it's like she's a superhero and then Lucas calls her a weirdo. Like, she's not a superhero, she's a weirdo. Now, these are the questions that we kind of have, of course, like that that's the audience 
viewpoint that's being given in the show because we're like, how did Eleven get her powers? That's what we're thinking of. So it is kind of making us think about it. How did this happen? Uh, giving us some more ideas about is she going to be a superhero or is she going to be a villain? She's just straight. Like, we we have these questions and it's just bringing them to the forefront of our minds. Mike kind of defends Eleven again to Lucas calling her a weirdo. And Lucas starts making fun of Mike for having a crush on Eleven, which Mike denies. While this is happening, the bullies from episode one come in. Again, I'm not learning their names because I don't care enough to. Bully one says that they're looking for their dead friend, which Dustin immediately goes like blank face and is like, hey, don't joke like that. It's serious. He's just missing. And the bully says that the dad is the one who thinks that he's dead. And then dad says he was probably killed by some other queer, which is just not okay. And when he said that, like him just talking about his dad the entire time, I was like, Draco Malfoy, is that you? But that's another instance of gay coding for Will. So we're at count two for gay coding. Dustin gets freaking mad. Like, he looks like he's about to punch this guy. And Mike and Lucas notice, and Mike, like, tells him, it's okay, just ignore it. We're not getting into this right now. But the fact that Dustin gets so mad at the joke on Will being dead, the joke on Will being gay, he he just gets burned up. And it really makes me love Dustin's character even more. Like we're getting more reactions from Dustin. We're getting more emotions from Dustin that we haven't seen in the first two episodes. And I really hope that we just get more of him because he seems like a great friend and a great character. So Mike suggests ignoring the bullies and tries to walk away from them, gets tripped by bully one and hits, like falls on his face and hits this well-placed rock and cuts his chin. And while I was watching it, I was like, that rock is a paid actor because it was like right there. It was just perfect for Mike to just hit, get a really good cut on his chin. The bullies laugh and walk away. Mike stands up. They try to, Dustin Lucas trying to make sure that he's okay. He's like, I'm fine, but he's obviously starting to tear up a little bit. And Dustin looks around the ground real quick, picks up a rock, and is like, hey, what about this one? Like, just trying to distract Mike, make him feel better, get him back on the task at hand. And they start, like, just kind of nodding along, like, yeah, this is perfect. And Lucas takes it and deems it the monster killer. Back to the high school, Jonathan is in the printing room. So we know that he takes a lot of photos. He may be part of a club in the high school where they get to take photos. So he has access to this room. And he is printing up his photos putting them up to dry. And look, these photos are not something that he should be sharing publicly. I really don't know what he's trying to do with them, but they're obviously creepy because there was no consent for these pictures to be taken. And he has one particular picture of Nancy taking off her shirt. Now it's from the back, but if anyone saw that, it would probably be bad for Jonathan. Now, I really can't fault him because, again, this is probably the only place where he can get these pictures printed. 
but why are you going through the trouble of printing them? Why do you want to keep these? Why, what has your interest so much in these photos that you want to keep them? Just really weird. Don't exactly know why. But this girl comes in that we later figure out is named Nicole. Nicole comes in, sees them, and Jonathan, like, had hastily started pulling them down. There was not enough time for those to dry. I don't think there was enough time for those to dry. But he starts bringing them down, and Nicole had already seen them. Jonathan walks out of the room, and Nicole is just kind of like, okay, that was weird, so I guess we'll see what happens with that. Back to the buyer's house, we have a great transition from the printing room for the photos, the red light in there, kind of takes over the entire screen and then fades back into a red Christmas light in the buyer's household. And again, we get this music piece called Blink Once for Yes. Amazing bit of music, very similar to Eleven's theme, but it's just so serene and so calming but also, like, is just this awe that you're feeling. Like, it evokes a sense of awe. And you're looking around the house, and there's just Christmas lights streamed everywhere. And they're all turned on. She has them all on. But it is beautiful. Like, absolutely stunning. If you've ever put up Christmas lights in that way... Or even if you just have a Christmas tree and you have all of the other lights off, like you know that glow that comes from the lights. I know in particular for me, there was one year where we had some extra Christmas light strings and my parents gave them to me. And I put them like in my room. I put them on the, what would you call them? I'm literally staring at one right now and I can't think of what it's called. They are the curtain rod. So I put them around the curtain rod and they just filled my room with this beautiful color and then I put them up in my basement as well and again it just it's this it's such a warm feeling because it's Christmas it's Christmas lights and it, it's just so much fun and of course that year when I did the lights like that that was after I had watched Stranger Things so I turned off the lights in the basement and was looking around and I was like man if any of these flicker once I am going to have a heart attack like I'm running out of the basement so amazing scene I love this scene this is probably why this episode is my favorite is just because of all the Christmas lights everywhere but that's kind of the shot that we're getting but there is a knock on the door that interrupts the scene and it's Karen with a casserole for Joyce so that's where Karen went. Karen has brought Holly with her. And yeah, that, that's where Karen went. I didn't know. Now I do. So she's there. And that's why Eleven's getting to run around the house. Now Hopper and Officer Powell decide to go to the public library to look into the lab and Martin Brenner specifically. So they pull up to this public library, which I think I talked about in the last episode is actually City Hall. But they pull up there. They go inside. And Hopper gets chewed out by the librarian at the front desk. Her name is Melissa. And what has happened is they went on a date and Hopper never called her back. So now she is going to make Hopper know that she is pissed off. And there's a great line delivery. You watch the show, so I'm going to say it, where she goes, 
I'm sorry, I'm a dick. And like the the accent that she has and with the rhythm of the line, amazing, perfect. So Hopper asks, do you have any newspapers around here? Melissa brings them over to a bunch of newspapers and Hopper asks her for help and asks specifically if there's anything about the lab. And Melissa's like, aren't you supposed to be looking for that kid? And Hopper goes, yeah, we are. So Melissa is just being very judgmental. And when Hopper asks her to help and says like, okay, we'll take the post. Can you take the times? She kind of like gives this huff and like does it reluctantly. Like she has to do it because he's the chief of police, but is very like, she's like, I don't want to do this. Why are you asking me for help? This is your job. Hilarious. Officer Powell and Hopper are looking at these newspaper articles and we get a bunch of different clips of Hopper looking through a few and sees that Martin Brenner has gotten sued by somebody named Terry Ives. Over to the buyer's house again, Joyce, Holly, and Karen are all sitting around the table in her kitchen and Joyce is justifying the lights by the fact that Will loves Christmas. And also, Joyce, it's November 9th. It's November 9th. It's time to put Christmas up. A lot of people could put Christmas up in that time. Like, you don't need to justify yourself. I guess you need to justify the way that you have hung the Christmas lights because people usually don't have them sweeping around the house. But, I mean, I'm just saying, you don't have to justify yourself in this moment. And then Joyce kind of like looks really intently at some of the lights and Karen's like, what's going on? Are you okay? And she says, oh, it's nothing. We're having electrical problems, which like, Joyce, yeah, of course you're having electrical problems. You have a ton of lights plugged in everywhere. <laughs> what do you think? But that, that's just a great excuse. So as they're talking, Holly notices that a few of the lights are turning on in the hallway and leading to Will's room. So Holly starts, Holly gets out of her chair and starts following the lights down the hallway. This is the part that I was going to talk about, the behind the scenes direction. So the director for this episode was Sean Levy. And Sean does this thing in a lot of his films, but especially when working with kids, where he plays a track of music to get them to really feel what they're supposed to be acting. So in the behind the scenes, Sean says that he played this very eerie music. I, I forget exactly what the track was, but to get Holly to evoke the feeling that we wanted, he played that music for her. That way we could have it. So great job, Sean, and great job, little Holly. Holly goes into Will's room and goes into the center near the bed, and all of the lights start going around really, really fast, almost as if, like, in my head, I'm picturing Will running around to touch all the lights. I don't know exactly how he's controlling lights. Don't know, but, like, that's what it looks like to me. And then all the lights go off, and Holly goes near this blank wall, which we had seen the monster kind of coming out of in the last episode when Joyce got scared and ran out of the house. It's this really great shot that's from behind her where it's near the ground. So we just see how small Holly is compared to this wall. Makes it really creepy. Music starts coming up. It gets really tense. It reminds me a lot of Poltergeist for some reason. 
obviously there's a little girl in that movie, so very poltergeist to me. And then we get a quick cut to a ding in the kitchen. So we have all this like tenseness growing and then it like, we get a jump scare, but it's not the jump scare that we were expecting. <laughs> so it's this jump scare of um, the timer going off. And then Karen says that she can now put the casserole in the oven. Why did you have a timer between putting the casserole in the oven? What? I'm so confused. I even checked the script. I did not hear this wrong. She literally says, now I can put the casserole in the oven after the timer has gone off. Doesn't make any sense to me. If anyone wants to explain that, please do. Email in the description. What? That doesn't make sense. I, I'm so confused. Anyway, we go back to Holly and she looks terrified. We have this one really great shot from the side of her face where she looks frozen in fear. The Demogorgon starts like reaching its hand out of the wall and then Joyce like picks up Holly and brings her to Karen. Now, this is the thing. How did Joyce nor Karen see the hand coming through the wall? It was right there. Like, I don't know how they didn't see that. It's fine. I'm going to ignore it, but just like on your rewatches, really weird. Also, another thing, I need to know how these walls work when it's a wall, because I just, mm, is the Demogorgon inside the house and reaching its hand from that wall and it's like reversing to where it looks like it's reaching out its wall the other way? Or is he outside the house reaching his wall to get in, reaching his hand into the wall to get inside the house? I need to know that. For the sake of me, I know that the Duffer Brothers have this book that explains how that plane of existence works and I need them to explain it to me. Obviously, we have gotten from season one to season four and we have season five coming. I'm really hoping that after season five, they just release the book. That way we can know. Like, I need to know these little details. Whatever. Joyce notices that Holly is looking at the wall and asks, like, did you see something? What, do you, what did you see? And Karen tells Joyce, like, hey, stop harassing my child. And Joyce says, like, hey, thank you for the casserole, but I need you to leave. And honestly, thank you, Joyce, because having a little girl in the house, she might get taken like Barb, and that's terrifying. So get the little kid out, get Karen out. Karen doesn't know what's going on. Karen's just trying to be a good friend, a good mother. Let Karen out. Over to the high school again. Nancy is calling Barb's mom to check if Barb went home. Now this, Nancy told Barb to tell her mother, that they were having a sleepover. So I think that the original plan was to go to this party at Steve's house, go home, and then uh, they would have a sleepover at Nancy's house. Nancy is asking these questions to Barb's mother and is trying to make up the story as she goes. Not doing a great job at it. Nancy, really bad lying in this scene. You had some good lying in the last episode, but now, like, you lie to your mother about the going out to eat, Sure, but your emotions are going haywire. And then this conversation, not good at all. There's also this Battle of the Bands poster on the payphone. I don't know why that's important to me, but I wanted to point it out because there's like a Battle of the Bands happening at the school, which is cool. The next scene, we're still outside the high school and Nicole 
Tommy, Carol, and Steve are all waiting by Jonathan's car because Jonathan starts walking up. Jonathan looks surprised that they're all there, but he sees Nicole and starts getting kind of worried. Uh, we figure out that Nicole tattled on Jonathan to get in with the cool kids. I I don't know if I would have tattled on him to Steve, but I think I probably would have told like a teacher or the principal uh, that way he could get academic trouble. But Nicole's just trying to get in with the popular crowds and that's really evident here. So Tommy takes Jonathan's bag and finds the pictures. Nancy walks up and Steve gives her the picture of her undressing in the window. And Nancy looks really like taken back by this. Obviously, she's still dealing with the fact like I had sex and I'm paranoid and I feel like people know. And now she has physical evidence in her hands of that choice. And if that was shown around the school, people can know. Obviously, now Jonathan knows. And it's just coming up very fast for her. So she's going through that. Steve calls him a pervert and breaks his camera. And then they all start walking away. Nancy stays and is like hugging close to herself and just looks really conflicted on what she's supposed to do next. But Jonathan has reached down to start like gathering up the ripped papers and his camera, trying to make like just get everything back. And Nancy decides to bend down to, I believe, help him, like just help him gather up the pieces of paper. I don't think this is the way that Nancy wanted to deal with this situation, but Steve really led that situation and did not give her a choice, even though it was her body that was captured. I would have been like, hey, Nancy, what do you want to do? Do you want to punch him in the face? Fine. Like, give Nancy that choice instead of just you guys. So Nancy, I don't think she would have gone about it the same way, feels really bad about it, leans down to start helping him collect the papers and then finds one of Barb sitting on the diving board and decides to start picking up the pieces around that and shoves them into her bag. And then when Steve calls for her, starts going away. There's again, this other great shot, director of photography, amazing, amazing. There's a great shot, wide, wide shot of Jonathan's car Jonathan kneeling down, all of his pictures scattered around the floor, and this breeze goes by and it like blows some of the ripped pieces of paper that he was trying to gather up away. And it's just this really great shot. I don't know why I love it so much, but I can picture it in my head. I have photographic memory, so any kind of shot that I really like, I can just get that. And I it evokes this feeling for me where he's just so defeated and like he was trying to gather up those papers and now even the wind is just like taking it. And so the fact that he is so fragile right now, that even the wind is going to blow some of his life and his work away, even though it was bad, he shouldn't have taken the pictures, but he did. And for some reason, he decided to print them. I'm not agreeing with him in any way, but like, I don't know, it's this feeling. Over to the power lines, Elle is there at 315. She's kind of pacing because the boys aren't there yet, but she's there at 315. She looks down at this fence and there's a cat hanging out by the fence that sends her into another flashback where she's in the lab again, in the testing room. There's a cat in a cage and she's being forced to do something to the cat. 
Now the cat is hissing at her, showing its teeth, and I don't know if Eleven is getting scared by the cat or scared by what she's being forced to do. In the last scene, we had her crushing a Coke can, so I don't know what she was supposed to do with this cat. I'm really hoping that she wasn't supposed to kill the cat, because that's just horrifying to me, that you're teaching this child to kill animals. Really disturbing. I really hope that that was not what she was trying to do. But she takes off her kind of headpiece mechanism and looks at Brenner and shakes her head no, she's not going to do it. I don't know if she gives up or refuses. I think that's a refusal. I'm pretty sure that's a refusal. But Brenner is not happy about her decision. Cuts to scene of her getting taken away. Looks like she's going to be being put back into the isolation room that we saw her in in the flashback last episode. And she is not wanting to go in there. She is putting up a fight. And when she does get put in there before the door closes, she kills both men using her powers. This makes her really tired, leans against the wall. We see that she's bleeding out of both nostrils and her ears. And we can see the veins really popping out around her eyes. So that took way more strain than crushing a Coke can. But Brenner comes over to the isolation room, looks at her, and says, like, either incredible or astonishing, and rewards the behavior. So obviously, Brenner wants Eleven to be killing people, (laughs) I guess. So, again, really disturbing, really, like psycho something and just really creepy really creepy but we go back into the real world and the boys show up and they are now leaving to go hunting for will over to the high school again nancy is uh, leaning against the lockers with steve sitting down and tommy and carol kind of all over each other and carol is talking about this stupid story where she was talking to her teacher and said something that got her into detention nancy says that she needs to leave because Nancy's mind is obviously elsewhere. She is worried about Barb. And honestly, there's just a change in priorities. Tommy, Carol, and Steve are all these popular people that think that they're the kings and queens of the world and that nothing can touch them. Nancy has had something very important in her life that has now been touched. And that sounded really weird. But Barb has, something has happened to Barb. And she can tell that something has happened to Barb. And so she's not going to sit around and listen to stupid high school talk. And honestly, this is this is so true. For people that have had to mature in their high school years or just are more mature than a lot of kids in high school, when you're listening to them start talking about stupid stuff, it's like, can you shut up for one second? Like, there's more going on in the world than whatever this is. So she's just done with it and she decides to leave. Over to the kids, they're walking through the woods and Eleven asks about the cut on Mike's chin. Mike tries to lie at first and then Eleven can tell that he's lying and Mike tells her the truth and then says, sorry, I didn't want to tell you at first. I didn't want you thinking that I was basically a loser. And Eleven tells him like, it's okay, I understand. How does she understand? Not positive on that, but some form of bullying that Eleven went through. 
maybe the bullying and being forced to go in the isolation, but I don't, I don't know if that's exactly replicable. So we'll keep that in mind. But there is a part where Mike says that these two mouth breathers were picking on us and Eleven learns the word mouth breather. And so do all of us. And if you remember when Stranger Things 1 came out, that was a great insult to throw around to people. So mouth breather, great insult. Back with Nancy. Nancy's going to do a lot of uh, stuff on her own this episode. She goes to, I'm guessing it's Maple Street. I really think it's Maple Street just because of the way the woods work and how Jonathan was able to get to Steve's house and Will was able to get to his house in the first episode. So I think Steve lives on Maple Street and Barb parked somewhere on Maple Street, three blocks away, that way they could walk. And so Nancy goes up to this car and looks inside and starts like yelling for Barb, like is just so worried. And so she realizes she's so helpless, like she doesn't know what to do. So she just starts yelling for her friend, like, where are you? Where, where can you be? I'm also wondering, is there a street called Dearborn that intersects with Maple? I'm guessing there is, but Steve lives on Maple. Does Nancy live on Dearborn? And so they're going to like meet at the intersection? I don't know. I'm still annoyed by the directions that she gave to Steve in the first episode, as you can tell. We're going to move past it, but just know that I was thinking about it the entire time. She goes into Steve's backyard because we love breaking and entering into people's houses, and she's still yelling for Barb. She kind of goes a little bit into the woods, starts yelling again, and then sees, I'm guessing, the Demogorgon run past. And she freaks out and runs out of there. So the Demogorgon was doing something in the woods where he just kind of ran. And Nancy freaked out and ran the other way. Now, I'd also like to mention, it is day in this scene, okay? And a lot of what Stranger Things does is they take their scenes and you can either assume that they're happening at the same time or one right after the other. So it is daylight. It is after school. And it is during winter, so it gets darker faster, but it is day, okay? Just remember that. We go to the buyer's house where she's inside. I still believe it's day in this scene, but some of the lights start flickering and they lead to this little like alcove that's in the wall. And Joyce opens it up expecting to find Will and he's not in there and she looks really defeated by it and that's really funny. But she grabs this bundle of white lights and brings them in with her into that little alcove and asks Will to, like, send her a sign. And Will somehow makes the lights glow really bright. So Will is manipulating this technology. So Joyce says, okay, I'm going to ask you questions. Blink once for yes and twice for no, do you understand? And it blinks once. So now we know that this isn't faulty wiring some way. Will is able to manipulate the technology and Will is able to hear her somehow. So we know that's all happening. We do find out that he is alive and we find out that he is not safe. So now as the audience watching Joyce, we know that Will is alive we know that he is not safe and that somehow 
he's able to communicate with her. So if there was any doubt that Will was not alive, now we know that he is. Now, Joyce gets really frustrated and wants to ask more questions that would not be answered in a yes or no format. So she starts, she gets out this, well, okay. (laughs) So she takes the lights and puts them up against the wall and then takes a bucket of black paint and starts writing the alphabet on the wall as well. So I think she gets to like C and then it cuts away. It cuts again to Nancy. Nancy goes home in tears. It is still day in this scene, but Nancy goes home in tears. Karen comes out and she tells her mom that she thinks that something terrible has happened to Barb. Again, still day. Important to remember, just remember it. So over to the library again. Brenner was testing LSD on Terry for a mind control experiment, or at least that's what the newspaper article says. And Terry is suing Brenner because she thinks that Brenner stole her daughter. Now, the fact that we have stole her daughter, we know that we're dealing with a child and something with the mind. That should be ringing bells. Not confirmed that it's 11, but it could be. And this woman named Terry might have been her mother. So, something to think about. Now, Hopper starts connecting the dots between the lab and a child on the run. But again, for us, we know that he's more tracking Eleven at this point than he is Will, which is really frustrating for us to know. But of course, he's not going to know that. He just sees a piece of a hospital gown and he doesn't even know that Eleven's alive. So, I mean, great writing. It's making us frustrated, but still, it's really aggravating. Hopper has a line where he says maybe he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe he saw something that he shouldn't have. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, just not in the place and the time that you're thinking of. So you're right, but the context is wrong. Now, as he is talking to Officer Powell, Hopper is called over the walkie-talkie and is told to go somewhere, I guess, because they go outside the library. That is now dusk. It is now dusk. And they turn their sirens on and they start going down the street. Now, again, this is a really cool scene for me because the shot that we get, they're pulling out of the library or city hall and then it shows that street. So right out of the shot, if you're standing where the shot is, right out of it to the back right, that's where Melvin's is. And then they actually have the parking spot that we were parked at when we got to go to the town And then there looks to be a movie theater on the left side over here. So now we know that there's a movie theater in the town. So we can add that to our repertoire as we go through. Over to the kids again. They are now done walking. They have gotten to their destination. I guess they were using Eleven as a compass of some kind because Eleven has brought them to Will's house where she says that Will is hiding. It is also now fully night in this scene, okay? Completely dark. I believe that Eleven is trying to explain, but doesn't have the words to or doesn't want to tell them exactly what's going on. But she also might be exasperated because in the last episode, we got that scene where she turned the board upside down and she put Will on the board along with the Demogorgon. So he is on another plane of existence. If that plane is somewhere where he can still be in his house, which we kind of see with him messing with all the lights. She's not wrong, but the boys are completely 
oblivious to her explanation from the last episode, I guess. And I thought that the boys understood what she was saying last episode, but apparently not. So they get really upset with her. And this is the second instance in this episode where we know that she's right. But if we were in the show, we'd think that she was crazy. Maybe not exactly, but we had Joyce in the first few minutes talking about all the lights and Jonathan thinking that she was going mad. And now we have Eleven saying that Will is in the house and obviously he's not and we don't have a full concept of that plane of existence yet. I think that the boys should be understanding and more understanding of what she's saying, but they are middle school boys, so maybe not. I also just find it really funny that they're right outside the house while Joyce is inside trying to communicate with her son. <laughs> and that if Joyce just like looked at the window and like saw the kids there, or if the kids looked in a window and saw Joyce messing around with a bunch of Christmas lights, I think that would be funny. But that does not happen. As they're trying to get an answer from Eleven, there are these police cars that start going down the road and an ambulance as well. So someone has gotten hurt from this police call that we saw that Hopper got. And the boys decide to start following it down the road. We go inside the buyer's house and Joyce is done painting on the wall. And it is now night and she's painting the Z. Did it take you that many hours to write the alphabet on your wall? Like, I know you didn't have to go to Melvin's again to get paint because there was a bunch of paint in the shed in the first episode. I remember that clearly. I don't know why it took you that long. We're going to ignore it. It's fine. But the timing there is really weird. And if there's one thing that bothers me in television, it's timing. Again, this is my favorite episode of season one, so I don't know why I'm badgering it this much. But it was something I noticed and something that I wanted to say. Joyce asks where he is, and he says right here, which he is. I don't think that he has the time to write in another dimension. <laughs> because then he tells her to run. But she says, where are you? He spells out right here. So Eleven was right. We know that he's somehow in the house and he's able to manipulate this. And some somehow he knows. I don't know how he knows that the lights are up. If he can like see into the world. I, I don't know. I don't know how that's happening. But she then asks, how can I help you? And then it does like this really tense music while he lights up R-U-N and the N has a red light above it. Again, great cinematography in this episode, great director of photography, great music choices. I just love all of it. All the lights start blinking and flashing really fast. Joyce turns around and sees the wall behind her start distorting and one of the arms comes out and Joyce sees the Demogorgon's face all kind of scrunched up. We've seen it open in the last episode, so it's kind of like this flower petal face almost, and it, it has it closed. Now, I did want to say Universal did a Stranger Things house a few years ago where they had the couch with the lights, and the lights would do R-U-N, and then they would start flashing really big. But you had that R-U-N and there's a lot of people that do Stranger Things setups where they have the code where the lights spell out R-U-N and it's really cool. So that scene is just iconic. 
iconic and has been replicated a lot of times in the real world. But back into the show, I'm wondering, it's completely night now, where's Jonathan? Where's Jonathan? I want you to think about that for a second, because he wasn't there. Where was he? Was he at work? Did he get a shift at work? I don't even know. He picked up his papers. He's not old enough to go to a bar and get a drink. I don't know where he went. I literally do not know where he went. But he's not home, so Joyce is going through this traumatic experience all by herself and screams and I believe runs out of the house. The kids have followed the police cars and the ambulance to the bottom of the quarry where we had seen the cops checking out in the last episode. Now, in the last episode, Hopper was talking about how if you jumped from that height and hit the water, the water would turn into cement. So if you're binging this, which a lot of Netflix shows are released, all of the episodes on the same day, so you already have that line in the back of your mind and it should be being pulled up again when you're at this quarry. And Heroes by Peter Gabriel starts playing. Great track. Great track. Again, the music in this episode. Amazing. But Heroes starts playing and Hopper is looking out and apparently they found something in the water. And he says, please don't let it be the kid. Well, it looks to be him. He's wearing the same clothes that Will was wearing. Mike, Lucas, Dustin, Eleven, they all see this body being pulled out of the water. And Mike absolutely blows up at Eleven. And it's like, you said that he was alive. You were supposed to bring us to him alive. And decides to run away because Eleven cannot explain what's happening. Eleven's just as confused as everyone else. We're confused too because we just saw that Will was alive. And now he's dead. What's going on? Mike takes his bike and starts biking away, leaving uh, Lucas, Dustin, and Eleven at the quarry. All the kids are crying and I started tearing up too while I was taking notes for this. I was like, oh my gosh, I've never cried before (laughs) during that scene. So that was really funny for me. Eleven does, like, she kind of looks around in exasperation and then like leans into one leg and like puts her hand on her forehead and that kind of move there's a lot of things that humanity does that we naturally do that we kind of I don't know how to explain it like when we're sad we frown when we're happy we smile people that are in cultures that don't have technology that are not as quote-unquote civilized as the rest of the world, there have been studies in those colonies where they see that the facial expressions and mannerisms match those of other people because they're just universal things that humans do. The forehead being touched to the head and exasperation, I don't think is something that humans all naturally do. It's something where every single time I watch it happen, I think... That's Millie Bobby Brown reacting to Mike, not Eleven reacting to Mike. If you think I'm looking way too much into that or you think that that's completely normal and a completely acceptable reaction, that's fine. But for me, it kind of takes me up for a second. It's not that important, but it is something that just makes me kind of be like, would Eleven react that way? We have some jump scenes in between Jonathan and Mike that Jonathan is driving down the road and has to stop because Joyce is running up the road and is like looking back from where she came. I think she's expecting the monster to be following her. And when Jonathan stops, he gets out of the car and is like, what's going on? Are you okay? 
And Joyce is um, just crying, cannot even say what's going on. Mike goes home where Karen and Nancy have invited Barb's parents over to the house. And Mike is just in tears. Karen comes up and is like, what happened? And Mike just hugs his mom. The ending shot is of Jonathan hugging Joyce or Joyce hugging Jonathan in front of the headlights of his car. So we only see the silhouettes. Again, great shot. Heroes is still playing. And the police are coming down the street towards Jonathan and Joyce. Now, the juxtaposition, juxtaposition, I can speak, of those two scenes of Mike getting consoled by his mother while Jonathan is having to console his mother just gives you a really good idea of the different relationships and the different dynamics. And I think that's really interesting and just again, hits home with the fact that Jonathan is a very independent kid in this family and is being, there's a lot of pressure on him. There's also something that I want to talk about. We have now had two episodes in a row where Will is in the house and the Demogorgon is coming through walls into the real world, maybe trying to get to Will, but why is Will? Yeah, this doesn't make sense at all. Will is in the house, hiding. The Demogorgon can get to him easily. That wall is, like, the house is not impenetrable. (laughs) And the Demogorgon can just get in and try to kill him. Instead, the Demogorgon is coming through the walls and trying to get more people in the real world. Has he given up on Will because Will is too hard of a prey? But he's obviously near the house because he's able to get into the house in the real world. So the Demogorgon is hanging around the house. And his opening portals into the real world to get easier prey, even though there's prey right on the inside and you would probably just have to barge down the door to get in. I don't know what the Demogorgon is doing. I really don't think that the Demogorgon has a brain at all and is more just a predator searching as much as he can. With the Jaws poster in Will's room, I really think that the Demogorgon is kind of like Jaws where he just wants blood. He just wants to eat. That's all he wants. And... I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Because there's easy prey in the house that he has not gotten to yet. And instead, he's opening portals to the real world to get blood. Whatever. I'm not going to think about that that much, but we're just going to go into the character ratings. I really like this episode. I hope you guys liked it too. I think the aesthetics make me really like it. Maybe not the story as I've gone through with this. But... I love this episode. Let's go into Erica Sinclair's character ratings. You bought best. You're all so nerdy. It makes me physically ill. You long-haired freak. All right, with Erica Sinclair's character ratings, I wanted to ask, who do we think is on the quickest path to find Will right now? Honestly, I realize that I'm asking this at a very weird part of the show where Will seems to be dead. So I think everyone is kind of going to have a little setback of dealing with that and will probably be something that's dealt with in the next episode. But at the moment, you have the kids group, you have Joyce, you have Hopper, and then we have Nancy, who Nancy isn't exactly looking for Will, but is really worried about Barb and is trying to find Barb and has now actually physically seen the Demogorgon. Now, Joyce has also seen the Demogorgon and has communicated with her son using the lights. I think Joyce and Nancy both are the quickest in finding 
either just the plane of existence that Will is on or Will himself. I think the kids are going to have a big setback just because they've gotten uh, separated with Mike not trusting Eleven anymore. Hopper is, he's off on his own trip going after Eleven, so he's nowhere close, but he is finding out about the lab. I really think that Nancy and Joyce are quickest in finding out about the plane of existence, which Joyce may have already realized, but I don't think that Joyce is capable of understanding exactly what it is. So we'll see what happens, but let me know your thoughts. Over to the characters themselves. I really wanted to focus on Eleven, Dustin, Joyce, Hopper, Nancy, Nicole, Steve, Melissa, Karen, Holly, the bullies, Brenner, and Jonathan. So those were a lot of the people that we were dealing with this episode. Um, I left out a few, but Eleven is just traumatized. Dustin is mega protective of Will, especially when it becomes when it comes to his sexuality, which I think gives a lot more context to not only Dustin, but also to Will himself. So I really like that we got that this episode with Dustin's character. Joyce is really becoming the girl who cried wolf, except that she's right. So she's getting a lot of the treatment of somebody who would be like, Oh yeah, there's this weird monster, but there's not actually a monster. She's just trying to get a bunch of a bunch of people to come to her aid, but she's actually right. And so that's really frustrating as a person watching the show because we're feeling for Joyce and we want somebody to believe her, but no one is. Hopper in this episode, a plot device question mark? Like he's not he doesn't really have like any character to him at all. He's just kind of moving the plot forward and showing us what's happening with the lab and bringing us to the quarry. So there's not really a lot going on with him. Nancy, as I've said throughout the episode, has now lost her innocence and is starting to see priorities. So there's more to life than high school. There's more to life than prior than popularity. And there's more to life than this current stage where you're at. So she has definitely uh, shifted her mind to caring a lot more about what's happening with Barb than about what's happening with Steve. Nicole is just tattletale. I doubt we're going to see her again. She doesn't seem like an important character, but she's tattletale. Steve is a douche and is becoming a human antagonist from how he's been reacting to Nancy's stress level, how he obviously does not care about the fact that Barb is missing, and to the way that he treated Jonathan with the photos, he's just becoming a real jerk and is being written as such and is really just becoming a human antagonist to have to deal with along with this Demogorgon. I said that Melissa, the librarian, is a fierce mama with an A, while Karen is the best mama with an O because Karen is the best mama. She just wants her kids to talk to her. And Melissa is fierce, and I love her dearly. Holly, 10 out of 10. You get 10 out of 10. You, you gave us the best scene. You're part of the reason this is my favorite episode. I love you. Holly, you're great. The bullies I wrote them with Tommy H. and Carol. They're just bullies. That's all they are. And I don't like them. Brenner, what were you doing in this episode? Brenner gets the title of strange because he shouldn't have been here. I don't know what he was doing, but he's also wanting... Eleven to destroy things, which is also strange. Why are you doing this? 
And why do you make her call you Papa? These are questions that I want answered, and I'm really confused by you. And you give me the egg. So there you go. Jonathan, is he a foil for Steve? Because we have those scenes of them sleeping, which I talked about earlier. If he is coming up as a foil for Steve, I think that's interesting because it shows that Nancy is the main character and those two are her co-stars. So she's obviously the main person. And then Jonathan and Steve are two people for her to interact with. But I like Jonathan. I do. I think it's a little weird with the photos, and I hope that we get more explanation with that. But I'm really starting to like Jonathan's character, and I hope that he treats his mother with an open mind after her traumatizing event, and that he really starts getting into the plot a little bit more. So with that, those were all of my character rankings that I wanted to talk about. So let's go into Martin Brenner's Things to Remember. Leave your train station. Stop waiting. Focus. Listen. Remember. Okay, there were actually a lot of things given to us this episode that we need to remember. So I know this episode is already running pretty long, but let's go through them. So Elle was taught how to read time this episode with 315 instead of 315. Just keep that in the back of your mind that that's how she's reading time. As I've said a few times, Nancy has now lost her virginity, so that's a loss of innocence. I'm counting the days to kind of see the timeline of what's happening in this show. So with her loss of innocence and the change in her priorities, how much longer do we have for Nancy to react to these things? What emotions is she going to be going through during that time frame? And will that be a part of it? Will this event be a part of it? Another thing, Brenner's doing something weird with the portal. Again, don't know why we had that scene this episode, but it was there, so I guess we need to remember that. The Battle of the Bands poster. Keep that in your mind. For me. Just do it. For me. It's a little thing. Just keep it. The Hierarchy of Elle's Powers. So we have Floating Falcon and Shutting Off of a Fan, Slamming Doors and Crushing Cans, and then we have Killing People. Those are, those are kind of the uh, three stages uh, with the falcon and the fan in one, slamming door and crushing cans in two, and then the killing people in the third. So we'll see what else that we can add to that hierarchy, but I'm going to keep that list going and we'll revisit it each episode if we get something new. Brenner wants Eleven to be killing people, I guess. He rewards the behavior. So for some reason, he wants Eleven to be destructive, which is strange. Very strange. Elle understands some form of bullying. Let's keep that in mind. Elle learns the word mouth breather. Keep that in mind. Both Nancy and Joyce have seen this monster now. So let's see how that influences the episodes moving forward. The boys are now calling it the Demogorgon. That means I don't have to call it the monster anymore. I probably will still call it the monster in some instances, but it's called the Demogorgon and now I don't have to dance around that word the first two episodes of me doing that were really hard to do. So it's the Demogorgon and now we can all move forward. Remember Terry Ives. She seems important. Let's remember her. And then we have a Jaws poster and the Tom Cruise poster. Let's remember those. Let's keep those in the back of our mind. We love 80s references. So we have those. I actually got through all of those really quickly. So let's move into Murray Bauman's peek behind the curtain. This is the part where I'm going to say, if you have not watched all of Stranger Things, this episode or this segment of the episode will contain spoilers for all of Stranger Things. 
If you have, this is going to be a fun discussion for us to go through, but this segment of the podcast will have no effect on any other area of the podcast. So if this is your first time watching and you have not watched any more episodes, you do not have to listen to this segment to understand what I'm going to be talking about in the next episode. I thank you for coming in to join me to talk about this episode and really go into it, delve into and discuss what happened. And I will be seeing you next week for chapter four, which I'm already forgetting the episode again. Let me hang on. I did this last week too. I should really look up the episode titles. Hang on. Next episode is chapter four, the body. So we'll be reviewing the body. I look forward to seeing you next episode. Please come back. I'd love to speak with you about it. But we're going to be going behind the curtain. So Marie Bauman, take it away. They don't spend their lives trying to get a look at what's behind the Oh, I like the curtain. This, this would open the curtain and open the curtain behind that curtain. Okay, I've got a few more things here than I did the last episode. The last episode I only had three, now I have five. We'll see how quickly that I can move through this. I'm at about two hours of recording, so this episode definitely went longer. But we'll see where the final cut leads to. So, first of all, Nancy and Mike are the reason that Karen stops being a good mom after season one. Season one, Karen is very different from the rest of the seasons that we get and the rest of Karen's character. Karen has a weird shift in the next season that's not really explained. And honestly, it's because Nancy and Mike are two freaking jerks that treat their mom like a piece of crap. Karen just wants her kids to talk to her and they don't, which is really annoying. So I am blaming Nancy and Mike for... Karen's character shift after this season. Next, Elle would have escaped the sixth and she would have done it through the boiler room. So in season four, we see Henry, not Henry. Is that Henry? Henry. It is Henry. Vecna. It's just Vecna. Yeah. Henry Vecna one. That's what they call him. So Henry is showing her this like entrance into the drainage tunnels from the boiler room. So they asked to see the tapes from the 7th. I don't know what day they showed him, but she wouldn't have escaped from outside. She would have escaped from the boiler room because that's what we're shown in season four. I really want a flashback of exactly how she got out, but we were shown that Henry showed her the like way to get out. So they could have showed Hopper any night with the tapes and it wouldn't have mattered no matter what, because nothing happened at that drainage tunnel, because that's not how she got in. Anyway, another thing with that is that in season four, we know that Eleven doesn't remember everything and has blocked a lot of her life out. And then she remembers certain things. So she remembers how to get out, but she doesn't know how she knows how she got out, you know, because she obviously gets out that's what we're dealing with this season anyway. But she doesn't remember the interaction with Henry of how to get out. She just remembers it instinctively. So when Elle says that she understands Mike's bullying, if she's talking about how she got bullied in the lab, she doesn't remember that segment of her life. So what? That doesn't make sense. Now, of course, this is hindsight. They didn't know that they were going to have like five seasons under their belt. The Duffer brothers didn't know that. So they built one season and let there be questions for afterwards, but it's still just weird to go back and be like, hang on, that doesn't make sense. 
also what doesn't make sense is that Brenner is proud of her killing people, but she's doing it in an angry way. We'll get into that a lot more in season two, season three, season four, but Brenner's rewarding that behavior, and I don't think that he was happy about Henry doing it when Henry was there. So I don't exactly know what's going on with Brenner's wants and what he's trying to have Eleven to do. Obviously, I do know, but like on that note, it doesn't really make sense. Another thing, what is Will doing when Holly is following the lights? He's going into his room and then he's freaking running around his bed at top speed. That doesn't make sense. Also, how can Will see the alphabet on the wall? Because we've been in the upside down now. We have spent prolonged amount of time in the upside down, okay? And he can hear her. We know that he can hear her because Steve can hear Dustin talking when they're in there. But how does he know that there's an alphabet on the wall? Because it's frozen in time, so there would be no way for him to see that. He can't see into the world. I guess he can see the little, like, light particles that may be surrounding the, um, the lights that Joyce has hung up. But that's another thing where Joyce has the lights off. That way he can communicate with her. But in season four, when they're in the upside down, the only time that the light thing comes up is when stuff is plugged in and stuff is on. So... I'm just really confused. I don't get how that works. It would have made more sense if Will was doing Morse code, which we know from season two that Joyce doesn't understand. So then maybe you have the kids come in or Mr. Clark come in or someone come in or she learns Morse on her own. That would be cool. But I I don't understand how Will is using the alphabet. Okay, now that I've gotten those done, those are my peek behind the curtain. Thank you guys again for coming. Next week, we will be discussing chapter four, The Body. Very exciting stuff. If you guys have any questions, comments, suggestions, anything that you'd like me to add, anything that you'd like me to talk about in particular, please let me know and I will decide if I want to add it to the list or not. I talked about my socials in the beginning, but in the description, I do have links to my Instagram, to my TikTok page, my email in there. I'll put my Twitter in there. So I have a lot of stuff for you to look at there. And honestly, just Thank you. Thank you for joining. I had a great time talking about it and I will see you next week for season one, chapter four, The Body.